a people holy to the Lord your God. And the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. This study is entitled, God's People. Who were they? What were they commanded? How does this apply to the church today? We welcome you each Lord's Day or to subscribe so that you may have these questions answered from the book of Deuteronomy. I'm always encouraged whenever our lessons align even with our children we study the ways in which God reminds us that we are His and all that He has done. This morning it is a continuation of that study and we see that it's linked in the feasts that God gave His people. This morning as we're studying the people of God, we're learning that they are a rejoicing people. Indeed, we are a rejoicing people. And so our passage will be in Deuteronomy 16, verses 9 through 17. And so if you are there in your copy of God's Word, I invite you to stand as we honor the reading of it. Deuteronomy 16, beginning in verse 9. Seven weeks shalt thou number unto thee, begin to number the seven weeks from such a time as thou beginnest to put the sickle to the corn. And thou shalt keep the feast of weeks unto the Lord thy God with the tribute of a free will offering of thy hand, which thou shalt give unto the Lord thy God, according as the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. And thou shalt rejoice before the Lord thy God, thou and thy son and thy daughter and thy manservant and thy maidservant, the Levite that, was, that is within thy gates, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are among you in the place which the Lord thy God hath chosen to place his name there. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and thou shalt observe and do these statutes. Thou shalt observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days. After that, thou hast gathered in thy corn and thy wine, and thou shalt rejoice in thy feast, thou and thy son and thy daughter and the manservant and maidservant and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow that are within thy gates. Seven days shalt thou keep a solemn feast unto the Lord thy God in the place which the Lord shall choose because the Lord thy God shall bless thee in all thine increase and in all thy works of thine hands. Therefore, thou shalt surely rejoice. Three times in a year shall all the males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose, in the feast of unleavened bread, in the feast of weeks, and in the feast of tabernacles. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which he hath given thee. Father, we come to you and we see that you have appointed us to a period of rejoicing. Lord, by your word, you have so governed our worship that we might remember that we are yours we might learn all that you have done. 
Lord, we pray that's the case this morning, Lord, that we would learn something more of who you are, what you've done, and the way that you've patterned our worship to reflect upon these things. Lord, let us worship this morning knowing all of this and the way it's fulfilled in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Lord, we thank you and we rejoice in you this morning knowing that he has given us cause to worship. Uh, Lord, and all of us together, your church, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The people of God are a rejoicing people. Just as way of brief summary, God has instituted uh, before His people, before they go into the promised land, He's reminded them again to observe the Passover feast and he appoints two more feasts, the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Tabernacles. They stand distinct to the Passover and yet we see a different um, motive to these feasts. These are feasts of rejoicing. But church, if you'll remember... We've just come from the study of the bread of affliction in Passover. So moving now to the Feast of Rejoicing, we ought to first realize this lesson that affliction precedes rejoicing. In John Bunyan's famous allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, in part two, the main protagonist, Christiana, the wife of the earlier pilgrim named Christian, she takes to her own journey. Following after her husband in the faith, she's confronted with the treacherous trials that faced her husband, and she's tempted by another character named Timorous who hopes to turn her back from her heavenly pursuit. And her response is fitting for us this morning. Bunyan writes, But Christiana said unto her, Tempt me not, my neighbor. I have now a price put into my hand to get gain. And I should be a fool of the greatest size if I should have no heart to strike in with the opportunity. And for that you tell me of all these troubles that I am like to meet in the way, they are so far off from being to me a discouragement that they show me I am in the right. The bitter must come before the sweet. And that also will make the sweet the sweeter. How often does the bitter come before the sweet? Does not Christ often lead us in the way of difficulty? 
Indeed, Israel would pass through the wilderness before they would come into the promised land. In their case and in ours, we see that suffering produces spiritual fruit. Surely this is what Paul spoke of when he wrote, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. In Romans 5, 3 through 5. The Christian knows the good fruit that is produced in the soil of affliction. We know that the sharper the edge of the hoe, the better fit it is to cut the weeds. As Spurgeon has somewhere said, I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. Suffering produces spiritual fruit. Isn't that the problem in our current generation? They don't know how to embrace hardship. Our culture has worked endlessly to couch every circumstance in comfort. It's true of you and I in a lot of cases. Never knowing difficulty, even being willing to sell their freedom, sometimes their own birthright for a cup of soup, they will never learn the sweetness of Christ or the pleasant the pleasance of holiness, the holy life, if they don't know suffering. In Israel, we see the provision God gives His people in leading them through the wilderness and bringing them first to the bread of affliction. We see this in the way the law precedes the gospel. Indeed, we're literally reading about the law. This is the second giving of the law. It's what the name Deuteronomy means in being given to the people of God before they enter the promised land. Israel's redemption did not come before the law. And yet it was by grace that they received the law. The law itself with its every restriction was a grace of God in governing His people, in revealing and ridding them of all of their unrestricted sin. Paul rightly calls the law our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. In Galatians 3.24 The word schoolmaster, as he uses it, is literally used elsewhere in Scripture for words like guide or a tutor in the faith. The idea isn't one of oppression, but one of instruction. Surely, you know the distinction between the law and the gospel. We know that the law reveals sin which brings death, but the gospel gives life. But do you know the way in which the law and the gospel are working together for your good? Is not the word 
through whom all things were made, the same word that was delivered on top of Mount Sinai. It's this good word in the Ten Commandments that establishes the righteous standard of God that was fulfilled by Christ Jesus and was imputed to us. I want to say that again. The law that we receive, the Ten Commandments, if you will, is what gives us the righteous standard of God that was fulfilled by Jesus Christ and that was imputed to us. You see, not only did Jesus die in place of the unjust, but He also clothes those who believe in His own righteousness. So not only... Did He die in our place? But He gives us His own righteousness. So in that sense, the law is very good. But first, it's the law that shatters our conscience. The law brings us difficulty as we learn our failures against this righteous standard of God. When the unbeliever learns of their sin and their due penalty, they're crushed, they're undone, they're spent, they're broken. Knowing that instant death is not punishment enough, but eternal death without being quenched will be their pay. Only then, when their heart of stone is demolished, Are they fit to receive the heart of flesh and the message that brings eternal life? The law precedes the gospel. In consistent form, the life of our Lord follows the same pattern. The cross comes before glory. Now Paul says... In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, that Christians are to be pitied above all people if the resurrection did not occur. If the resurrection didn't occur, we're to be pitied. Now, if that's true, how much more ludicrous would it be for us to have a resurrection apart from death? Surely, Christ had to suffer the cross before he would receive the glory and resurrection. It's only fitting that affliction come before exaltation. Christ himself preached that the temple would be torn down before he would rebuild it in three days. The cross came before glory in the life of Christ, and it will be so in the life of his followers. Christ commands, take up your cross and follow me. He tells us the world hated Him and they will hate us also. Indeed, the cross Christ lays upon us is one that leads to glory. So though affliction comes before our rejoicing, we shouldn't be deterred because 
The God that delivers us the bread of affliction is also the God that commands our rejoicing. If our affliction is great, how much greater will be our rejoicing? You see, we can't forget either one of these. If we don't forget the affliction that God brought in His instituting of the Passover, we can't forget our rejoicing in this way the feasts that he prescribes in our text this morning, they prevent our forgetfulness. So we need these feasts. Man is a forgetful creature. It's okay, you can say amen. I heard some women chuckle, but we're talking about women too. Women are forgetful too. <laughs> right. I'll remember that when I have to call your phone later. We're forgetful people. Amen? We are a forgetful people. Israel was a forgetful people. We are a forgetful people. Now, it's easy to pass judgment on Israel because we... We read of their history. We know how it went and we know the way they behaved. We know how quick they were to forget their own plight under the whip of the Egyptians. At even more rapid pace, they forgot their redemption by the mighty hand of God. They forgot His holding back of the waters. They forgot the manna from heaven, the meat from the sky. They forgot the water from the rock, the miraculous the delivery of the tablets on the mount. They forgot the grace of God's presence among them in the wilderness. And so God leaves them more than a story. He gives them a series of feasts that are to be repeated. He doesn't rely on their poor memory. But He calls them to remember their affliction. We're called to remember our affliction. How often do we grumble about our present circumstance? Lord knows we have a lot to grumble about. But if we question ourselves there, now ask yourself, how often do we recall our former hardship? Undoubtedly, many of us here have endured struggles of various kinds. But do you often ask, how did God work through those circumstances? How did God use the bread of affliction to prepare your own heart to receive His grace? And once you've considered how God has worked through those times, second, have you considered how you've shared that with your children and with your grandchildren? 
If you can, in fact, if your memory does not fail you and you remember the way in which God worked through the hard times, how well have you shared that with your children? That's what these feasts are doing. They're commemorating our occasion for rejoicing. Listen, testimonies are incredibly useful for God's purpose. Now they don't, as in certain times, periods in history, or on some occasions, testimonies do not serve as a substitute for God's Word in the pulpit. But our testimonies should be ever on our lips in public. You shouldn't wait for an occasion to to come up here to speak your testimony from here. Your testimony is yours and you have it daily. Perhaps we would be well served to commemorate the times of affliction. Maybe we would do well to teach more thoroughly the Passover in our homes. Perhaps... We're in need of greater and more frequent periods of fasting. Our children and our children's children must know of God's grace through those times of affliction. And so too, they must know God's grace through the bread of rejoicing. You see, there's occasion for both of these. We, we break the bread of affliction, but also we must commemorate these times for rejoicing. The feast that we read about this morning, there were two. The Feast of Weeks, the first, it begins at early harvest. At the very first time, whenever we, we begin to pull the first fruits out of the field, shortly after Spring, no doubt. And it lasts seven weeks. The second feast comes at the end of harvest when the last of everything is brought in and it lasts seven days and it makes use of the fullness of the storehouses. Again, God's not hung up on a memory or captivated by a photograph. Instead, He's appointed our praise for His regular provision and blessing. Now it's evident in Israel, we know their outcome, we know their story, we know the way in which they're coming in to the promised land. We know the way in which they're coming into the land flowing with milk and honey. They're reaping crops that they did not plant. We know that they would... They were moving to a shepherding culture that they would depend on the early and the late rains and it it was directly related to God's provision on the increase that they would receive. We know their outcome. And yet when we consider and we meditate upon this command to keep periods for feasts for the purpose of rejoicing, I can't help but wonder how many among us have lost the love that we had at first. I 
Isn't this the warning to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2? They lost the love they had at first. Who here has grown stale in her walk with Christ? Is there anyone here who has grown content to see Christ no longer glorified in their country, in their community, or in their home? Are we content to be silent in our rejoicing? Do you even remember the grace as it first appeared to you? Can you sing honestly that hymn that says when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God praise than whenever we first begun. I have to tell you, the answer is obvious during our worship hour. The visitor will know your love for the Lord. They'll know your rejoicing when they hear you sing. How well do we rejoice in the Lord? It's no surprise that a man forgets this joy. It's like the seed that gets choked out by the thorns and all of the cares of this world. You must be intentional to remember the joy that God has given you. And so for our help, God commands our feasting. He commands it of His people. Now, don't hear me say that God desires your monotonous repetition of ritual. It's not that He requires this and, and, and we have to keep the appointed days and such, but... Nor does God desire a people who do not rejoice and feast with one another unto God's glory. Our feasting keeps us a rejoicing people. We as a people have a rejoicing God. Make note of Zephaniah 3.17. He preaches, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty. He will save. He will rejoice over thee with joy. He will rest in his love and he will joy over thee with singing. This is your God, church. Your God is a rejoicing God who rejoices over over His people and He calls us to rejoice in Him. The Christian is characterized by joy. Paul writes, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, Rejoice evermore, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In Romans 12, 12, he says, Rejoice, be joyful in hope. 
patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. To the Philippian church, he writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. We're a rejoicing people. Now, why is it? Why is it that any professing Christian would not rejoice? Why would it seem that so many Christians are not rejoicing? Because they've believed some false doctrine. Or they're not saved at all. The one who is not eternally glad after having received faith has made their faith merely a work of their own doing. The one who is not perpetually overjoyed at the baptism of a new saint is one who's made baptism a work or merely something to check off of a to-do list. It is only the one truly saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that is found rejoicing day by day. In Christ, we become like the jailer in Acts 16 who made a great feast and rejoiced greatly having believed in God with his whole household. In Christ, we're able to rejoice even in our sufferings. You see, in contrast to the Passover, which is commemorated and illuminated in the Lord's Supper, which is not for the filling of our bellies, the feasts that are prescribed here have everything to do with our fullness. It is a godly thing when the people of God make feast together for His glory. Let's make our occasions for feasting unto the Lord. Let's make them great. We multiply our occasions for feasting. Knowing there comes a day when all the affliction and the period of affliction is entirely done away with and our time for rejoicing will be at the wedding feast of the Lamb. It is what we look forward to, is rejoicing. So we are a rejoicing people. Christian, it is without qualification that we must heed Peter's words 
in the passage at the base of your outline. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you in meekness and fear. We are a rejoicing people. Father, we come before you today, Lord, and, and our hearts do rejoice. Father, we're filled with gladness. For you have met our greatest and most dire need. In Christ, you have paid our penalty. But in Christ, you have given us joy. You have given us hope. In Him and in His righteousness. Lord, You've granted us peace and happiness. Lord, we rejoice that in Christ we can, get, we can bring You rejoicing. Lord, in Christ we may make our God glad in us. Lord, restore to us the joy and the love that we had at first. Lord, let our gladness never be quenched. Let us be a people who long to speak of the joy that we have within us. Father, let us be a people who look for and multiply our occasions for rejoicing and for feasting with one another. God, let us gather as we feast on your word, the bread of life, the well of living water. Father, we pray that you do draw our hearts together. Let us rejoice with one accord. Build us up in unity and community. Teach us to have all things in common. That we may be a happy people leading quiet and peaceable lives in the face of great tumult and adversity. Lord, this is what you call us, your people, to. Lord, by your grace, we ask that you help us to live in obedience of this command as applied through Christ Jesus. Lord, that we would rejoice anew this morning with every morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Life Baptist Preaching. 
We hope that you join us next week for more in this study in Deuteronomy on God's people.